Bill Gorman, on the campus pastor here at the Brookside campus of Christ Community Church. And um, as always on these snowy, very cold days, thank you for coming out. I've got my, my smart wool socks on this morning, trying to keep my, my toes warm uh, today. Well, it's good to see each one of you. And um, this morning, as we uh, jump into the book of Hebrews, uh, which we've been studying together for a number of weeks now, um, I'm going to read Scripture for us, and uh, ordinarily we often have the person doing the greeting read the Scripture, um, but you'll see in a second why uh, I'm, I'm opting to do that this morning. Um, together, uh, as we study this book of Hebrews, we come to some parts of the text that are a little bit more, um, more difficult, and this is one of those uh, places this morning. Also, I just want to mention too, before I forget, kids, if you are here, we love having children in our services. You can grab one of these Kid Connect forms, and if you fill this out, you can take it down to Mr. Dave after the service at the children's check-in desk and he has something for you. So um, feel free if you're a kid to grab one of these. Um, and the big idea of the book of Hebrews, so just to keep in mind as we're, as we're going through it, is that you can't do better than Jesus. That, that Jesus is, is the true and better uh, everything. So that you can't do better than Jesus. That's the central idea of the book of Hebrews. And this morning, I'm going to do something that we rarely do. I'm actually going to read the, an entire chapter of the Bible from start to finish. And as I do this, um, it's actually going to feel like I'm reading the entire Bible. It's going to seem that long. So I just want to set expectations. It's going to seem like really long. Um, and, and actually, you know, you, almost against my better judgment, I'm doing this. But uh, there's a leadership principle that you walk toward the barking dog, right? If there's a problem, you go, you go toward it if you're a good leader. And so uh, you'll see in a moment, I said, you know, rather than shying away from this, I'm just going to go right, right to it. So um, if you have a Bible with you, uh, turn to Hebrews chapter 7. There's Bible's in the pew, and I think the page number is, is like 1,005, 1,006, somewhere in there. Um, Hebrews chapter 7, I forgot to write that down. So um, we're going to read this. Like I said, it's going to feel like a long time. Um, so when I keep on going and going, uh, just know it will end uh, eventually. So this is God's word, Hebrews chapter 7. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues as a priest forever. See how great this man was, to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who receive their priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, although these are also descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descendant from from them received the tithes of Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. And it is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. And in the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the case by of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself receives tithes, paid tithes, through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to the tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. 
This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, which has become a priest, not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, because the power of an indestructible life, for is witness of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We're, we're still going here. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. He is, has no need, like the priest, to offer daily sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. And then I love verse 1 of chapter 8. Now the point of what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest. So I'm sure you guys all tracked with that, and I can just sit down and uh, we can go home and be, uh, be feel like we, we've got it. Um, probably not at all. Um, actually, I don't feel like I totally understand all this, um, but we're going to look at this together. And so normally, before um, we open the message, I usually pray and ask for God's help in understanding His Word. I feel that need acutely uh, this morning, as I'm sure you do. So let's pause and do that right now, and then we'll dive into this. So, Father in Heaven, we are so thankful that You have given us Your Word, and You tell us that every part of Scripture is, is breathed out by You, and that it's profitable, it's useful for us. And so um, we know that every part of Your Word uh, is for our good. And so this morning, I pray as we look at this text that you would bring to life um, and help us understand why this text matters so much for each one of us. Amen. Well, when I was in college, um, I constantly felt like I needed to prove myself. Um, like, I, the thing was, I, I grew up and I was homeschooled all the way from kindergarten through, through high school, so, which was fantastic. I loved it. It was a great educational experience for me. I felt great about it. But the thing is, when you're homeschooled, it comes with certain liabilities. And, and one of them is this. When you're homeschooled, you are the only person in your class, which means that uh, the good news is that you're always first in your class. Uh, the, the, the bad news is that you're also always last in your class. And so I remember going off to college and always having this kind of sense of I'd never really regularly been in a classroom with lots of other students. I did okay on standardized tests, you know, so I had a sense that, okay, I'm, I'm doing well, I got accepted to college. But I didn't ever have this experience of kind of ranking myself in a classroom. And so when I arrived at college, I first was just determined not to fail. Uh, but then I felt like I needed to prove that, that I was smart enough. And, and then once I started getting good grades, that wasn't enough. I felt like now I needed to prove that I was smarter than the other people in my class and in the school. Um, and, and any grade less than an A just felt like a devastating blow every time. In fact, I remember one time I, I missed the dean's list one semester because I got an A- minus in weight training. I mean, look at me, A minus in weight training. I mean, come on, what were they, what were they thinking? Uh, I mean, I guess apparently lifting all those books in the library back and forth to the shelves wasn't, wasn't enough to really bulk me up enough to get the full A in the class. Um, but the hardest three words for me to say in my freshman year of college were, I don't know. 
And I always lived with this nagging fear that, that, I, that somehow people would, would find out that I wasn't really as smart as, as, as they thought I was or as I was trying to pretend to be. Now, now, grad school, simply by the undeniable fact that there was lots and lots of people who were way smarter than me than they are, kind of cured me of that to a large extent. Um, but it didn't cure me of the nagging sense that I had something to prove. And in grad school, I took up running. And of course, it wasn't enough just to, to run. I needed to run marathons and then multiple marathons. And, and I don't know, again, what to prove what? How disciplined I was to, to make up for that A- in weight training. Um, now, I really wish that I could say becoming a pastor had really cured me of this sense of needing to prove myself. But, but of course, it, it hasn't, right? Um, it hasn't. And in fact, pastors are the worst with this. Um, when you get a right group of pastors together, we're always about trying to have something to prove. And, and it really comes down for pastors, it's the three Bs. So the, the building, the budget, and the bodies, right? So it's all about, you know, who has the bigger, better building? Who has more people? Who's got the bigger budget? But, but we, we all feel this, right? This nagging sense of, of inadequacy. The feeling that we're never quite making it. That we're always just this far away from, from being found out. And we need to prove ourselves. I mean, if you're, if you're a mom, maybe it's, you know, this, this fact that, that, you know, you need to prove that your cloth diaper, baby-wearing attachment, child-rearing skills are, are better than the next mom. Or, or maybe you feel guilty because the mom next to you does all that stuff and, and you don't. And, or if you're a student, maybe it's your grades or what school you're applying to go to in college or your athletic standing. What is it that you're trying to prove? Here's the thing. You, you actually do have something to prove. It's probably not what you were expecting to say in that moment, but you actually do have something to prove. When you look at your life, do you actually have it all figured out? Right? And you, you don't. None of us do. We all make mistakes. And worse than making mistakes, we sometimes knowingly, purposely do things that we actually tell other people are, are wrong. We're all messes. And that's why we feel like we have something to prove. We know that we don't measure up even to our own standards. And as people in this position, the last thing we need is more goals, more self-help books, more, more self-esteem mantras. What we really need is a priest. Really, Bill? <laughs> really. What you need is a priest. Now, now, don't think Roman Catholic priest here. That's, a, that's not what I'm talking about. When I say priest, I'm talking about this, the old school, animal sacrificing, blood sprinkling, burnt offering kind of priest. Okay, church just got a little weird. Um, well, let me explain. This is what, this idea of needing a priest, a, a, a blood-sprinkling, animal-sacrificing kind of priest, that's what the author of Hebrews assumes when we come to this text. That's why it's such a hard text for us just to read and get. He's assuming that we know we need a priest. And for this preacher, the book of Hebrews was originally a sermon, for this preacher, his audience of first-century Christians who come from a Jewish background, priests were an absolutely normal part of their life. But not for us. We do, I mean, we have Roman Catholic priests, but, but not, not priests like these. Now, even for these first listeners, this would have been a tough passage to get. I mean, remember a few weeks ago, he says, you've become dull of hearing. He needed to wake them up because this was coming. This text was coming. 
But for us, 2,000 years later, it's, it's hard for us to understand, and it's also really weird. So it's, we're, it's doubly hard for us. For them, it was hard. For us, it's hard and weird. So whether you're here for the first time this Sunday, or you've been coming to church for a long time, all the stuff, high priest, covenant, Melchizedek, who in the world is this guy? This stuff is confusing. But you see, the people in the first century, particularly Jewish people, they assumed that they didn't measure up. They knew they didn't measure up. They assumed that they were fundamentally at odds with God and that the way to be right with God, the way to have a relationship with God, was through a priest who offered sacrifices on their behalf. This was how their whole view of the world was oriented. So so think about it this way. Uh, Let's say you are guilty of treason and deserve death uh, because actually all of us are in that place because of sin. And your trial begins— What you've done is awful, and the gavel of justice is going to fall. Now imagine how foolish it would be to try to represent yourself in that case. To say, I don't need a lawyer. I'm going to defend myself. Right? I mean, maybe that works in the movies. You know, someone says, I'm going to defend myself. But, But if you talk to any lawyer, to defend yourself in court, especially if it's a death penalty case, is just, it's utterly ridiculous. When you're facing those kind of charges, you need someone better, someone skilled in the law, someone more qualified to represent you. That's why we need a priest. We need someone who will do the proving for us. We need a priest, and here's the good news. We have a priest, but but not just a Levitical priest that the author is talking about in this text from the Old Testament. That actually won't help us. And this is the point of all that long passage we read at the beginning, that we have Jesus as a great high priest, that Jesus is the true and better priest, that he's better than the Levitical priesthood. Now, it may seem like, why did he have to take 28 verses just to say that Jesus is a better high priest? But this is key. If you were a first century Jew, you knew that not just anyone could be a priest. You knew that only Levites, again, The nation of Israel had 12 tribes. One of them was called the tribe of Levi. Only people from that tribe could be priests. Jesus isn't a Levite. He was descended through the tribe of Judah. Look at verse 14. It says, For it is evident that our Lord descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. Now, why is this such a big deal? This matters because Christianity— isn't just a sort of a random brand new faith that that Jesus or, or much less the apostles kind of thought up out of thin air. No, Christianity understands itself to be the fulfillment of, the the completion of what God had been at work doing for thousands of years with the Jewish people, with the Israelites. And and so that it's important that there's a continuity that that, that doesn't just abandon all that God had done in the Old Testament. There's, there's There's a continuity that stands there. I think sometimes because of what uh, literary scholar C.S. Lewis says, uh, he calls it chronological snobbery, sometimes we tend to think that people who lived, you know, decades or centuries before us were, were backward or somehow inherently less intelligent or less sophisticated in their thinking. However, these people that the author is writing to 2,000 years ago, they were just as smart as an intelligent um, as we are. And for them— They needed a good argument. They knew that Levites were the only ones who could be priests. You can't just all of a sudden say that Jesus can be a priest. He doesn't come from the line of Levi. 
And this is why the author takes such length to make such a complex argument here. You see, Christianity is a thinking faith. It wrestles with these questions. And you can almost imagine the preacher of this, of the, the author of this Hebrews letter, kind of pouring over the law books. He's looking for a precedent. Where is there a time where someone who wasn't a Levite was also a priest? And as he's paging through, scrolling through, he remembers Melchizedek. Melchizedek who? Melchizedek. He was a priest and he wasn't a Levi. Yes, that's it. He's the precedent. He's the precedent. Now, Melchizedek, this, this crazy guy, he's only mentioned two other places in the Bible uh, besides here. He's mentioned in Genesis 14 and in Psalm 110. And Genesis 14 is written 2,000 years before Hebrews and gives the author the precedent to show that not only Jesus could be a priest— but also, and we'll get to more of this in a second, he could be a king at the same time. He could be priest and king at the same time. Here's how the author summarizes Genesis 14. If you look back at the beginning of Hebrews chapter 7, he says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, king, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings. There was a big battle that had just taken place and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness. That's what Melchizedek means, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues as a priest forever. So, okay, this is where we see that Melchizedek is the precedent. He is both priest and king, and he's not a Levite. He's king of Salem, and Salem is most likely the site of what would become Jerusalem. You actually hear that same Salem, Jerusalem, in the the name. And he's a priest of the Most High God. A priest, but not a Levite. And and notice that the text says his genealogy isn't recorded in Scripture. He just sort of appears on the scene, and then he disappears. Now, the author isn't saying that he doesn't have a mother or father, or, or that he doesn't have a time that he died. That's not what he's saying. He's just saying it's not recorded in Scripture. But that makes, his point is this makes the analogy to Jesus even more perfect because Jesus actually doesn't have beginning and end of days. He does exist eternally. So here there's a precedent of someone who is a priest and a king who isn't a Levite. And this predates the Old Testament law that divided priest and king. You see, when the Old Testament law was enacted with Moses, there was a division between priest and king. It was kind of a, a checks and balances thing. The priest couldn't be a king, and the king couldn't be a priest. Two separate offices. But, again, fast forward a thousand years from Genesis 14, you now have David, who is a king over Jerusalem, who writes Psalm 110. And David wasn't a priest. He couldn't be a priest. But when he writes Psalm 110, a thousand years after Melchizedek lived, he indicates that this guy, Melchizedek, this is really about the Messiah. That someday, somehow, there would be someone who could be both priest and king. Don't miss this here. You see, this is so, just reminds us so so clearly that the Bible, all of it, from, from Genesis all the way to the end, is about Jesus. Every page of this book ultimately points to Jesus. In the first instance, this book, this collection of manuscripts over a thousand years have been put together, is not in the first instance about you and what you should be doing. It's first and foremost about Jesus and what he has done. But here's what's really cool. Watch this. Jesus is priest 
after the order of Melchizedek, which means that he is better than the Levitical priesthood. He's a a true and better high priest, the one that we actually need, the one who could actually solve the problem. In this passage, the author says that the Levitical priesthood wasn't good enough. The Levitical priests and the sacrifices they offered, they provided a vivid picture, a signpost to what was coming, but they were not enough to actually finally deal with the heart of the issue. They couldn't be the advocate that we really needed. So in verse 9, the author says Melchizedek is better than the Levitical priesthood, but how he makes the argument is is even probably the most bizarre part of this text. text. So just stay with me. This is what he says. Verse 9. One might even say that Levi paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, now just when this couldn't get any weird, yes, we're talking about Abraham's loins here. And, and, and I promise this is going somewhere. We're, we're, we're getting there. You see, Abraham paid tribute to Melchizedek, and, and Melchizedek then blessed Abraham. The author says the, the superior one blesses the inferior one. So Melchizedek is even greater than Abraham. And the entire, and then his point is, the entire Jewish nation, including Levi, and all of the Jewish priests were in Abraham's loins at the time, if you know what I mean. That their DNA was still in him. So that this means that Melchizedek is also better than, superior to Abraham, superior to all the Old Testament priesthood. And, And if Melchizedek is better than the Old Testament priesthood, and Jesus is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, It means that Jesus is a better priest and a better sacrifice and a better hope than anything that the Levitical priesthood could offer. And this is paradigm-shattering stuff. Does anybody want to go back to worshiping God with the blood of animals, using a priest to gain access, continually trying to prove yourself? Right? None of us want to do that. I mean, do you ever wonder why we don't do that stuff anymore? It's not just because we, all of a sudden we realize it's gross and weird to, to sacrifice animals. It's because Jesus is a better high priest with a better way. The ultimate priest, the final high priest, the only priest who can prove our case before a holy God. You see, these verses change everything. Okay. Now, Bill, this is what probably you're thinking. This all seems interesting enough, I I guess. But I drove out in the snow and ice not to get a history lesson about Melchizedek and and Abraham's loins. It's great, but I need something to help to get me through my week here. I trust you, Bill. Maybe some of you don't, but just pretend for me. I trust you that if you spent half the message on this, that that it's going somewhere, that this matters somehow. So, so, but Bill, you got to get me there. Why does it matter? Why is this such a big deal? What difference does this make? Let's take us back to where we began at the beginning. We want people to think that we're good enough. We want God to think we're good enough. We want to think that we're good enough. What are you trying to prove? Arthur Miller, the Pulitzer Prize-winning playwright, summarizes this intense longing in his play After the Fall. And in this, he records a man reflecting back on his life. Listen to these words. The character says, For many years I looked at life like a case at law. It was a series of proofs. When you're young, you prove how brave you are or how smart, and then what a good lover, and then finally a good father, and finally how wise or powerful or whatever. But underlying it all, I see now there was a presumption 
that one moved on an upward path towards some elevation where I would be justified or, or even condemned, a verdict anyway. And I think that my disaster really began when I looked up one day and the bench was empty, no judge in sight. And all that remained was the endless argument with oneself, this pointless litigation of existence before an empty bench, which is, of course, another way of saying despair. You see, having Jesus as our great high priest matters because it means that we have nothing to hide, we have nothing to fear, and we have nothing to prove. Nothing to hide, nothing to fear, nothing to prove. Let's look at each one of these. First, because we have Jesus as a great high priest, it means we have nothing to hide so that we can actually draw near to God. That little phrase, draw near, is used all over the book of Hebrews, and it's actually used twice in this chapter. Jesus, through his role of, as priest, it means that we're able to draw near to God. If you look back at verse 25, it says, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. See, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Now, now what does it mean that he saves, that he rescues to the uttermost? Well, that little word, uttermost, can either have the idea of, like, completely or permanently. And if you're using the, the ESV, that's the translation that we have in the, in the pews here, you may even notice there's a little footnote next to that word, uttermost, and it says, that is completely or at all times. Hebrew scholar Donald Guthrie writes this, the meaning seems to be that as long as the high priest functions, he is able to save. As long as the high priest functions, they will say, Jesus' priesthood is permanent. It never ends. He's a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. That's why he's able to save completely at all times forever. Because Jesus' priesthood is permanent, our rescue is permanent. He has the power of an indestructible life. He has beaten death at its own game. He has defeated it forever. The sacrifice for sin has been made once for all. Forgiveness is possible for you forever. Therefore, you have nothing to hide. Come. Come as you are and find forgiveness. You see, this is the test of, of whether or not you're really a Christian. On what basis do you draw near to God? On what basis do you feel like you can come and pray that God accepts you, right? This, this, is the, this is the dividing line that separates those who, who are really Christians from, from those who, who just think they are, who are trying to be Christians. You see, some of us, we, we think, yeah, the reason I can come before God is that, well, I've been pretty good lately. I, I've been faithfully going to church. I, I haven't really messed up in a while or because I've stopped sleeping with my boyfriend now, it's okay, or because I've stopped looking at porn or I haven't looked in a few weeks and and now, don't get me wrong, all of those things are good, but those are not what make you a Christian. What makes you a Christian is that you've abandoned any hope at all of being able to be good enough on your own, being able to prove your worth. See, you don't have to hide. You don't have to clean up. In fact, constant efforts of hiding and cleaning up and sin management are just evidence that you haven't ever really believed or that if you have believed, you've forgotten the power of the gospel to be the means by which you come before a holy God. Because of Jesus' high priesthood, you have nothing to hide anymore. So come, 
draw near through Jesus who is able to save to the uttermost. So you have nothing to hide. Second, you have nothing to fear. See, because here's the thing. Even though Jesus saves to the uttermost, even though his sacrifice is once for all, we continually still feel accused, don't we? We continually feel accused. This is why we're always working so hard to, to prove ourselves. We feel the constant accusation that whisper that you aren't good enough. We're accused by Satan. Actually, the word Satan means accuser. We're accused by others, often by those closest to us. It's the ones that are closest to us who really know all the junk about us anyway, right? We're accused by others. We're accused by ourselves probably more than anything. But because we have Jesus as a high priest, we have nothing to fear from those accusations. Why? Because Jesus, as our high priest, is our advocate. He is our intercession. Did you, did you catch that in verse 25? It says, Jesus always lives to make intercession for you. Jesus lives to make intercession. That's what he lives to do, to intercede, to be your advocate, to defend you from any charge that is brought against you. A quick side note here, this is why it matters that Jesus ascended into heaven after he died. I mean, sometimes, I mean, we, I think we all do. We wish, why didn't Jesus stay here on, on earth? I mean, it would be great to be able to, to see him and, and talk with him, see him face to face. Why did he have to ascend to heaven? Well, this is one of the reasons. Because if he didn't ascend, he wouldn't be standing at the right hand of God interceding for us. How do you picture Jesus? Do you picture him as a, a baby in a manger? As a man on a cross? How about a priest, king, victorious at the right hand of God? We, we said earlier, it's foolish to go to court and represent yourself. Hey, when you are in court, you need an advocate. You need someone to represent you, to defend you. And when you're in court, you want your representative, your advocate, to have the best qualifications, right? If you're being taken to court, you want the, the, the best lawyer who has a degree from the best school with lots of experience. You want them to be brilliant. You want them to be expert. You want them to be fearless and tireless in pursuing your case. Jesus is the advocate that we need. Just look at how much better he is than the Levitical advocates. They were many. Jesus is one. They were temporary. He is permanent and eternal. These are his qualifications. They were sinners. He is holy, innocent, unstained. They had to offer sacrifice for their own sin. They sacrificed for their own sin. He sacrificed only for the sin of others. They sacrificed daily. He sacrificed once for all. They sacrificed animals. He sacrificed himself. Okay, so these are his qualifications. But again, why does it matter? Because as as one pastor observes, in court— you look exactly like your advocate. So when you are in court, you look like what your advocate looks like. If your advocate is brilliant, then you're brilliant. If your advocate wins, then you win. If your advocate loses, you lose. You are in your advocate. Your advocate in court represents you, and you look exactly like your advocate in the eyes of the court. So what do you look like in court if you have Jesus as your advocate? You look holy, unstained, exalted, Everything that Jesus accomplished comes to you if you have him as your advocate. And this means that we can have a constant humility and confidence at the same time. You see, our tendency is always to be comparing ourselves, to ranking ourselves to other people. And this is why we hate criticism so much, right? Because criticism calls into question our worth. 
when someone criticizes you, our, our tendency is to either respond in pride, how dare you, or to respond in despair. Yeah, wow, I guess you're right. I really am worthless. And, and if you're like me, you actually respond in both ways. Usually I respond first with, with pride, how dare you, and then later on I begin to think, no, they're probably all right. I am worthless. But, but if you take to heart what we've said here, that you really do have an advocate. I, I love what, what, how Tim Keller talks about this. He says your life is infused with a new playfulness. Because when someone criticizes you, you can laugh and say, you don't even know the half of it. <laughs> you don't even know all the ways I messed up. <laughs> You're right. I, you, you, what you say is absolutely true, and, and I'm even more broken and, and more messed up in ways you don't even know. But, but I have a high priest. And because I do, I am perfectly and permanently accepted, and therefore I have nothing ultimately to fear for criticism. It doesn't mean it's easy to take. It doesn't mean it's fun. But it doesn't destroy you. They don't even know the half of it. And you can laugh about it. You see, Jesus is the advocate that we need. It means we have nothing to hide, nothing to fear, And then lastly, it means we have nothing to prove. Because Jesus is the high priest you need. You have nothing to prove, which means you can rest. You can rest because you don't have to argue for yourself anymore. You don't have to prove your case anymore. You have an advocate who makes the best case on your behalf. He makes the definitive argument for you. You see, Jesus as our advocate isn't standing before the Father begging for mercy for us. Sometimes I think that's how we picture him. Jesus is standing before the Father saying, you know, Bill, he's always messing up, but just for my sake, Father, just give, give him one more chance. That's not at all the picture. When Jesus stands at the Father, when someone accuses you of falling short, of not living up, of not being good enough, Jesus doesn't plead for mercy for you. He pleads for justice. Let me explain pleads for justice because when Jesus died on the cross, if you trust him as your Savior, his death on the cross is credited to you. He paid your debt. It means your debt is paid. It's completely wiped clean. Therefore, when a charge is brought against you, Jesus says before the Father, not just give him one more chance. No, he says, this one is mine. I have paid for her debt it would be unjust for her to be paying again. It's already paid. The debt has been paid. It would be unjust to make her pay again. She's vindicated. She is forgiven. She is safe. You see, Jesus is arguing the just thing for God to do is forgive us. Because of my sacrifice, Jesus is saying, because I've sacrificed, I've paid the debt, the just thing now is forgiveness. The Apostle John writes in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And a few verses later, John continues, My little children, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. You don't have anything to prove anymore. Jesus has made the definitive case for you. This week as I studied, I was reminded of the first Christian to be murdered for following his faith, for following Jesus. His name was Stephen, and you can read about him in the book of Acts, uh, chapters 6 and 7. 
And Stephen stood on trial before a council of religious leaders that day, and they wanted nothing to do with Jesus or his followers, and they condemned him. In their eyes, Stephen was guilty of the worst blasphemy and deserved to die. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven, and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. It says in, in Acts, or, uh, Acts chapter 7, verse 56, it says, And he behold, I see, this is Stephen talking, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out and with a loud voice, they stopped their ears and rushed towards him and they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. You see, Stephen was condemned by an earthly court and the stones rained down and they battered him to pieces. And in that moment, Stephen could have kept trying to prove himself. He could have changed his story, done something different. But the earthly court no longer mattered because he looked up and he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of heaven and he knew that the only verdict that mattered was already settled. That Jesus was standing in his fence. Justice. Jesus is saying, this one is mine. He's holy. He's unstained. He belongs to me. There will always be people who will condemn you. There will always be people who criticize you. And that person probably most often is actually you. So you need a priest. And you have one. That's the good news. You have one. It's one of my favorite sins says, before the throne of God above, we have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. No tongue can bid me thence depart. You have nothing left to prove. And that's the good news that we celebrate every week in communion. As we eat the broken bread, as we drink the poured out juice, we declare that Jesus is my true and better advocate who lives always to intercede for me. And we, we also believe it's important to intercede for one another in prayer. And if there's something that you need prayer for, maybe you're sitting here thinking, Bill, I, 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 I want this idea of the advocate to be true, but I just don't feel it. I, I need help. We, we would love to pray with you. And I and others will be uh, back near the sound booth here uh, during communion. We'd love to pray with you about the, anything from the message or just anything in your life that you're wrestling with. And if, if you're new, let me explain how we do this here. Um, we have four communion stations around the room. There's two in the back and two in the front. Um, this one here has gluten-free communion elements available if you uh, need that. Um, what we do is we just gather in groups at the table, and we partake uh, together. We just dip the bread in the cup, and then we eat it together. You don't have to be a member here. Um, if you embrace Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you are welcome to join us. Um, if you haven't embraced Jesus, uh, you're off the hook. This is, you don't have to be a part of this. Um, if you're just sort of checking Jesus out, we're really glad that you're here, and we hope that this is a safe place for you to explore and ask questions. And I just invite you to use this time to, to ask Jesus to show you himself. He's pursuing you. He longs to be the advocate that you need. Ask him to help you watch for him. Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, and he said, take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and he said, Drink of it, all of you, 
For this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. For the forgiveness of sins. So come now to the table and taste and touch and see the good news of the forgiveness of sins. Come when you're ready.